in the face of the devastation of the opioid epidemic, we are making a difference in the lives of individuals in recovery by helping them be more stable and employable, which not only benefits them, but also benefits their families and their communities. Equal access to justice is a core American value. In each episode of Talk Justice, an LSC podcast, we'll explore ways to expand access to justice and illustrate why it is important to the legal community, business, government, and the general public. Talk Justice is sponsored by the Leaders' Council of the Legal Services Corporation. Hello, and welcome to Talk Justice, an LSC podcast. I'm your host, Ron Flagg, president of the Legal Services Corporation. The opioid epidemic in America is front page news. What is less well known is the role civil legal problems and areas in civil legal problems such as housing, family, employment, and access to health care play in aggravating the opioid crisis and the critical role legal aid providers can play in helping to alleviate those problems. In today's podcast, we discuss the multiple settlements in litigation against opioid manufacturers and distributors, how states are deciding to distribute the money they receive from the settlements, and the point that I just alluded to, that civil legal aid can be a highly effective opioid epidemic abatement strategy. Our guests are Helen Gratil, who is the project director for Beyond Opioids, an innovative joint project of two LSC-funded legal aid programs in Arkansas, the Center for Arkansas Legal Services and Legal Aid of Arkansas. Robert Johns is the executive director of Legal Aid of the Bluegrass in Kentucky. Robert previously served many years as executive director of the Appalachian Research, Education, and Defense Fund, also in Kentucky. And last but not least, Betty Bailly Torres, Executive Director of the Texas Access to Justice Foundation. Betty is also a longtime champion of legal aid and has been instrumental in increasing the amount of funding available to legal aid programs across the state of Texas. Welcome to all of you, and thank you for joining us today to talk about your work to address the opioid epidemic. Before we jump into the substance of your work, I want to level set the context for our conversation. In the face of tens of thousands of deaths related to opioid use, an even larger number of non-fatal overdoses, and millions of people becoming addicted to opioids, states, cities, counties, and tribes brought multiple lawsuits against opioid manufacturers, distributors, pharmacies, and in some cases, individual prescribing physicians and pharmacists. Now, when we talk about the opioid settlements, we're generally focusing on two of the cases, the nationwide multi-district litigation against three pharmaceutical distributors and one manufacturer, which settled in 2021, and the nationwide multi-district litigation against three pharmacy chains and two manufacturers, which settled last year. Between those two settlements, approximately $40 billion will flow to many states and local governments over several years. The settlement agreements contain provisions requiring parties receiving the money 
to spend it on opioid abatement strategies. Some of those are nearer terms and some of those are longer term strategies. Those nearer term strategies can include immediate remedies such as funding treatment centers and acquiring Narcan for first responders. The longer term strategies can include educational campaigns about the danger of opioid use or social services for pregnant women with substance use disorders. Or again, this may bridge the two categories of nearer term and longer term strategies, access to medications for opioid use disorder for incarcerated individuals. LSC's Opioid Task Force observed in its 2019 report that many individuals with opioid use disorder and their families experience civil legal issues that pose barriers to entering or remaining in recovery. For example, having a criminal record may prevent a person from obtaining a job or safe and secure housing. That's the kind of issue that civil legal aid attorneys deal with every day and that can help someone resolve their problems and is an example of the support that can be funded through the opioid settlement funds. And I'm happy to have all three of you here to talk about your experiences with those settlement funds. Helen, let's talk with you to begin with. You've been at this work for several years as the project director for Beyond Opioids. Can you tell us what caused Legal Aid of Arkansas and the Center for Arkansas Legal Services, where Beyond Opioids is housed, to focus on helping people with opioid use disorder? What were the greatest needs your clients face? Of course. So in Arkansas, we were turning away or underserving a lot of the people that come knocking at our door. The call volume and capacity ratio was just so imbalanced. So our leaders, particularly Lee Richardson of Legal Aid of Arkansas, went on this mission of crafting a proactive approach as an overall legal aid program strategy to serve our client population. And the first line of inquiry is the impact of adverse childhood experiences on our client population. Our, so the question was, are high ACEs score a good predictor of whether a child will grow up to be in poverty and therefore needing legal services? So we started with an ACEs program, and at that time, Arkansas had the second highest ACEs score in the nation, with a whopping 25% of its children exposed to sustained toxic stress. So the natural progression of that ACEs project is a focus on one type of ACEs, which is substance use disorder, to enrich that inquiry. And we lucked out because funding became available to support this project through the Federal Health Agency, HRSA. And we received $200,000 in a planning grant and then a combined $2 million in implementation. And we could not have prioritized people with substance use disorder as we do now without that seed funding. And then we needed a strategy to make systemic changes in the way we support people suffering from substance use disorder and the families attached to them who need recovery support. And we started the implementation in September 1st, 2020 of the project. It's been nearly three years. And the greatest needs that our clients face so far is, number one, a support system that they can trust. 
our clients tend to be distrustful of legal professionals in general because their encounters have been negative and devastating. So through this project, we were able to build the community trust, first with medical providers who treat them. Then these medical providers allowed us to access their patients in a therapeutic setting, casting us as part of the treatment team. Essentially, Beyond Opioids is an informal medical-legal partnership in its operation. And at this stage, we have evolved to building formal SED-MLPs because of that trust-building exercise. Now, in terms of civil legal needs, the number one need that we have is accessing children. Visitation, well, they are trying to get better with the goal of reunification. We get a lot of those cases. And then guardianship for grandparents who are trying to step in the role of a parent when someone, a parent, is in an active use or in treatment or in recovery and they cannot perform their role. Driver's license reinstatement is another one. We like to punish people here by taking their driver's license away, but they do need to drive to places to get better. And then the third one is navigating access to medical care, to know about medication for opioid use disorder, and to afford the treatment through Medicaid, making sure that they stay covered. I mean, right now in Arkansas, there's been an unwinding of pandemic health coverage, and therefore I think 140,000 people have been kicked out of Medicaid, so we're pretty busy making sure that people with medication opioid use disorder don't lose their coverage. And then finally, stealing criminal records. Um, as you said, this, these are barriers to employment, housing, and loans, which is incredible, incredible resources that people need who are trying to stay in recovery or enter recovery. Thanks, Helen. Again, I, you know, I think uh, most people, when they think of the opioid crisis, the epidemic, don't necessarily think of lawyers as having a role to help the uh, victims of the crisis, and you've talked about the central role that everyday problems, whether it be family problems, employment problems, housing problems, access to health care, can play and be barriers to recovery. Robert, uh, Helen started Beyond Opioids in a very different funding landscape than you and other legal aid programs face today. You and the other LSC grantees in Kentucky use data from one of the grantees' projects serving people with opioid use disorder to make a coordinated request to the state of Kentucky for funding that came out of the settlement. That strategy paid off as Kentucky's LSC grantees each received $250,000 from the state's opioid funds. Can you share with us the data you use to support your applications and why you decided to proceed collectively rather than competitively, if you will, and how your client population's needs helped inform your respective applications. Sure. Ron, I first want to thank you for the opportunity to be a part of this today. This is a very important topic. So as you mentioned earlier, I'm currently the director at Legal Aid of the Bluegrass, and I had been the director prior to that at Applerid Legal Aid. And Kentucky has just been devastated by the opioid epidemic and substance use disorder. And the programs in Kentucky were looking for ways to support folks impacted by the epidemic. And back in 2018, Legal Aid of the Bluegrass launched its Kids Rise project 
to address legal issues that children and families impacted by OUD were experiencing. And at Apple Red, we were looking for ways to try to directly support folks in recovery. So in 2021 at Apple Red Legal Aid, we partnered with the Kentucky Access to Justice Commission and the Foundation for Appalachian Kentucky on a pilot project to serve people in recovery in two recovery centers in Apple Red service area. The Foundation for Appalachian Kentucky funded an AmeriCorps VISTA member whose job it was to screen folks at the recovery centers to identify the legal needs that they were facing. So during the one-year pilot project period, we generated some helpful data. 117 people in recovery were identified to have civil legal needs with about 80% of them having more than one legal issue that they were facing. Now, various legal needs were identified, but the most prevalent were expungement, debt issues, including the need for bankruptcy and other related issues, family law issues like divorce, custody, and, and visitation, which Helen mentioned visitation, an important issue for folks in recovery, try to reconnect with their children, and driver's license issues. Those were the biggies. We also saw some housing and public benefits as well. We had some really good success stories, including one man who was able to get a truck driving job after we were able to get an expungement for him. So the pilot project really exceeded our expectations and we thought that the data would be helpful as we started to look for other funding. And at Apple Red, we used that data as part of our application for an Appalachian Regional Commission Inspire grant in 2022, which we were awarded, which is also funding this kind of work in a project that we called Project Renew at Apple Red. After that, we we're continuing to look for funding opportunities in Kentucky. And when the opioid settlement funds became available, the four LSC-funded programs in Kentucky met to discuss this funding opportunity. And I'll say, Ron, that the programs in Kentucky, we have a great relationship. We work closely together, collaborate on various projects, and really support each other, which is really wonderful. So we sat down. We decided to submit very similar proposals using Apple Red's Project Renew name. And using the data from the pilot project, we made the case that civil legal aid was an essential part of the recovery ecosystem. And we believe that making similar proposals to provide the same services across all 120 of Kentucky's counties would be attractive to the Attorney General and to the Commission. And that was really borne out in the approval of all of our proposals. The data, as I mentioned earlier, showed various kinds of legal needs that our clients in recovery are dealing with. So we adopted the successful approach of the pilot project, and we proposed to screen for legal issues and provide holistic services to address those issues. And we said we would be connecting with recovery centers and other partners in the community and meeting clients where they're at. And we believe that we could successfully make the case that the, the services that we would provide through Project Renew would increase stability and help people overcome barriers to employment. So each of the Kentucky programs, all four of us received a $250,000 grant from the 
Kentucky Opioid Abatement Advisory Commission. And those four grants together totaled a million dollars. And that was one million of the eight million that was available in funding during this first round that the commission was approving. So one eighth of the total funding went to legal aid, which shows how much they valued our services. So now we will be focused on doing the work and continuing to build support for this vitally important work we do to assist folks in recovery. Well, that's tremendous. And I hope your colleagues around the country uh, hear Helen and your um, stories about the work you were doing and how that work resonated with funders in Arkansas and in Kentucky and led to further funding, which is a good segue to Betty. You obviously have a different perspective from Helen and Robert. You are a funder of civil legal aid, and you had a different approach to securing opioid settlement funds for legal aid providers. Can you tell us about your approach and the work you're doing in Texas? Sure. Um, And thank you, Ron. This is really an important topic, um, and I appreciate LSC doing this. But I also need to thank LSC because you really planted the seeds that ended up bringing funding into Texas. In 2019, you, you know, you not only did you put out this report, but you had a presentation, a reveal of the report in Chicago. And it so happens that I was in Chicago at that time. And so I reached out to LSC and asked if I could come to this press conference. And that planted the seed for us to say, you know what, when these monies come, we should be looking at this very seriously. And so obviously billions have come in and they came into Texas. Uh, for us, our first opportunity was two years later in 2021 during the legislative session. And so we met with the providers and said, you know, there's going to be these dollars. We feel as if we have the better opportunity to get these dollars if we come in as the foundation rather than individually. But certainly if you feel like individually you have a better shot at it, you know, go for it. I think we all agreed it was better that the Texas Access to Justice Foundation come in and do that. And so we spent the entire legislative session educating legislators about the uh, opportunities that legal aid would provide for people who are um, suffering from this addiction. And so it was a hard sell. It was not something that was intuitive to anybody. And so we really used the LSC report. And that was really, we everywhere we went, we had our report talking about the difference that legal aid could make. Ultimately, through the support of, and you're not going to be surprised, Ron, uh, the Supreme Court of Texas, uh, specifically Justice Guzman, Eva Guzman, who was our liaison at the time, we were able to persuade them that legal aid should be part of their investment. So what they ultimately did is they created a council. This council is comprised of basically doctors and social workers and people in the addiction community. And they are really the ones who are going to decide. We're going to decide how those dollars would be spent. And so we were concerned that if we went to the council directly, that there was no one who would understand legal aid. And so we asked for $5 million off the top. 
so that we would not be in a position that we would be competing with every other entity that does great work. And so ultimately we did receive $5 million. And so the, uh, it came to the Texas Access to Justice Foundation and for us to distribute to the legal aid programs. And so that was the approach that we took to bring in those dollars. So that was, you know, 2021. We didn't receive the dollars until last fall. I just want to make sure we emphasize something about what you just said. The key word here is collaboration, and there's collaboration in two regards. One, people who are suffering from opioid use disorder and their families need a range of services. They need health services. They need legal services. They need social services. And those services are best delivered if there's a collaborative approach of all of the service providers and if legal aid is at the table. So to the extent legal services are needed, they're available. But you also underscored collaboration in Texas and in Arkansas and in Kentucky with your approach to the funders. Because actually, Betty, what you just described was you as the Access to Justice Foundation, not acting in the first instance as a funder, but as a, a, a grant seeker to then grant out the money. And again, taking a collaborative approach, saying to the first-line funders, this is a statewide systemic problem that uh, requires a collaborative set of responses, and we're in a position to help facilitate that kind of collaboration. Now, Betty, when I interrupted you, you just gotten the money. So how did the foundation decide to distribute the funding? What kind of projects did you want to fund? Did you do research to target areas in the state or uh, specific legal issues? How did you go about it? Yeah, and I, you know, Ron, uh, thank you for, you know, kind of highlighting the need for collaboration. So what we ultimately did is we went through a different grant process than we ever have for these dollars. We asked for a, a letter of interest. And in that letter of interest, we needed to know things like specifically who will you be collaborating with outside the legal aid community and inside the legal aid community. Uh, and we wanted to know also where you were going to focus your services and what was going to be the method of delivery. Because we understood that this is different, that what we did not want to happen is for someone to apply through the regular system because we understood that this required a different approach. And so, you know, we had these 11 letters of interest. I think we ended up with 10 of them were outstanding. And we looked at when we made recommendations for funding to our board, we looked at communities. And for example, because Texas loves to do everything the best or the most, or um, we had four of the highest opioid use disorder communities in the state. And I, we were shocked. And it wasn't anything that we intuitively knew it was like, it, so we had to do, as, as our staff had to do research. And so we wanted to make sure that we invested in those communities. And so we did. So we looked at, let's invest in those communities and others as well, because as you know, it is statewide. Every community has this issue, but we targeted. We 
also looked at the specific partnerships that were being developed along the way and the type of delivery. And so by way of example, I'm sure it's not a surprise to anybody, is that we looked at partnerships with drug courts is an example of something that wasn't necessarily typical, but that that was a very specific partnership. And when we talk about also medical legal partnership, well, in this case, it wasn't necessarily with a local hospital, it was with treatment centers. And so we just really looked at how do we target so we get to the community that we are trying to reach. Because part of what we understand is that these are one-time dollars. It's $5 million one-time dollars from the legislature. And so we wanted to build something that we can build upon and do things like what I hear Helen and Robert are doing. They're able to bring in other dollars because they're making the case of why you should invest in legal aid and what the difference it makes to families. Thank you. That's terrific. Robert, what lessons have you learned through the process of applying for opioid settlement funding that you'd encourage your colleagues around the country and other legal aid providers to consider as they go after these uh, opioid settlement dollars? Sure. So I'm, I would say that there's a few lessons that, that we've learned that I think might be helpful First, I'll reiterate that the the statewide collaborative approach amongst the the legal aid programs, I think, was very valuable. It was attractive for the commission here in Kentucky to be able to provide grants that would cover the entire state. All 120 counties would get the same legal services available to folks in recovery in those counties. So if, you know, to the extent that that you can collaborate and do something on a a statewide scale or a regional scale, something like that would be worth considering. The use of the joint name Project Renew is something that we hope, and as a branding effort here, that we hope it's going to be beneficial as we continue to try to build support for funding these efforts. Um, We're going to be able to share in each other's successes and use those successes to help to continue to build the case as a group, individually, each program as well. So we're going to be promoting Project Renew and building name recognition. So we hope that 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 branding effort will be real beneficial in terms of building support going forward. Another lesson uh, that we learned would be to engage with your state commission or whoever the decision maker is on these settlement funds before the grant process even begins, if you can. In Kentucky, the Opioid Abatement Advisory Commission held town hall meetings across the state to discuss treatment and recovery before the grant process even began. So the legal aid programs attended those town halls. We spoke and began to make our case about the importance of the services that we provide to folks in recovery. And one of the town halls was very, very interesting in eastern Kentucky. It was in in Pikeville in eastern Kentucky. Apple Red staff was talking about some of the work that we had been doing at Apple Red. And some folks there from, from different recovery centers spoke up about the civil legal issues that, that their clients were facing. And, and this, during the town hall meeting, reinforced you know, what we were saying, that there's a great need for civil legal aid to support people in recovery. 
and commission members, you know, during all of the town halls and particularly that that evening in Pikeville, were very receptive and supportive, you know, to what we were saying and and the services we were providing. So, you know, largely we successfully made the case about the importance of our services before the grant process even started. So to the extent that that you can attend meetings, reach out to folks on the commission or other decision makers where you have contacts, that can be a really important way to start making your case and, and giving yourself an opportunity to put forth the best case that you can make throughout the process from, from beginning to the end of the grant process. The last lesson I would say is just something basic that, you know, get ready to make your case. If you can, get some data together to show the importance of the services to people in recovery. Even the small amount of data that we were able to get from the pilot project, it went a long way to just show that, hey, we're not just talking about this theoretically. Look what we've already seen on a small scale. You fund us and we can expand this and look at what these services can do to support people in recovery. So do whatever you can to put together the most persuasive case you can. And and that may be within your state. It may be using other states' data, whatever it takes. But when you're submitting that that grant application, make sure you've got your case together and it's the best case you can make. Helen, same question. You've been successful in several different instances in attracting funding. What approaches and strategies would you share with your legal aid colleagues around the country for them to use when applying for opioid funding? Okay, so we've been doing this for four years, so there's a lot, and uh, I wish I could do it in five minutes, but uh, I'll hit the, the highlights, and I want to start with what Robert said, the branding. So we have two legal aid programs coming together, and we called it Beyond Opioids, right? So we wanted to build a name that would kind of distances from how we have treated people with substance use disorder in the past, right? Usually we use that as a weapon for our clients. So we wanted to make sure that we kind of neutralize the name. And then we were also thinking that while our seed funding came from opioids, the reality is that there's always polysubstance. It's not just opioids. And so we wanted to say it's beyond opioids. We needed a name that was catching. So kind of pulling away from the legal name was important in allowing for people to trust us, the client population to trust us, because they don't say, okay, you're an attorney, we don't want to work with you, which is the response we normally get. So that's one. Second is also something that Robert and Betty have already said in terms of arguing or proposing that civil legal needs are a critical and necessary component in the continuum of care for a person with substance use disorder and their support system. That is sort of the hypothesis that or the proposal that we did when we asked for this funding from a rural health grant that never gave funding to a law firm ever. We were the first one and it was sort of a shot in the dark, but we strongly believed in it because we know that to be true before we had data. And then so you use hard data to support this claim to the extent that we could. We kind of had to make inferences because at that time things were still new. The second part is engaging the community to identify the needs of the special target population. What we did is to did a basically a community survey 
with the $200,000 that we got, one of the things we did is a needs assessment. We sent out a survey to prevention, treatment, and recovery service providers to say, what in your view are the main legal needs for the people that you serve? And then we also asked the client population through their clients, through their patients, and saying, what are the main civil legal needs that you have? So we have a list of things like, these are the things that we offer. Are you having this problem? Would you like these services? So we're kind of building data for for the implementation proposal that we did. And then we also consult other legal aid programs who have done substance use disorder focused projects that are, what are the common legal services requested and rendered during your project implementation? So this needs assessment was key to use data to support the assertion that civil legal needs are necessary for treatment of a person with SUD and the recovery of the entire family impacted by substance use disorder. You also want to announce in your proposal that you're flexible, that you will use the data in the needs assessment to redefine your priorities to meet the needs. So in our case, we expanded our services to include driver's license reinstatement, the early release from probation and parole, which we could do here in Arkansas, and some level of a pardon project because a lot of the people would have such a rap sheet that sealing the criminal record is not enough. So you kind of have to be open to doing the pardons as well. And then adoption defense. A lot of our staff would be a little bit more hesitant because the facts are a bit problematic in those cases. So we prioritize that. And then in your work plan for the proposal that you're submitting, which they will ask for, you want to make sure that you address the issue of the stigmatization of people with substance use disorder and how you will address that with the stigmatization in your internal staff, the civil justice system at large. That's very important. So in our case, we discovered that internal stigma can make or break an SUD-focused legal aid project. So in our project, we help not only the person with substance use disorder, but their support system as well. And our case handlers, especially the family law group, have a lot of reservation about serving people in active use, treatment, and even recovery. So for the first two years of project, we saw we tend to accept cases and prioritize those people who are supporting the person with substance use disorder and not the person sick with substance use disorder, mostly the grandparents needing guardianship, for example. So we needed to kind of have a top-down directive from the executive director to shift those percentages. And we needed a to create mandatory fields in the legal aids um, programs case management system, legal server in the case of Arkansas, to ask whether the client is with SUD or is the client impacted by a family member's SUD. So we did running the periodic reports to make sure that we are moving the needle in the right direction, that our project is really serving the person with substance use disorder. And then we had to make sure that we expect the pushback from staff and be prepared to handle it. If you don't handle it, you may get the funds, but you won't get the data or the trust of the community that you need to sustain the project. 
you need to, for us, we had to bring in an expert to train staff about misconceptions about people with substance use disorder, explaining that this is a disease rooted in trauma. That's very important to get internal buy-in and um, to make sure that the training is sustained during the first couple of years of the project to reinforce the message. We brought a national speaker on addiction and symposium we staged with the planning grant that we got. And that message worked with one of our influential leaders um, to get her buy-in. And her buy-in had a trickle-down effect for one of the program. So essentially what I'm saying is that having a stigma program nestled in your proposal is important because everybody who's been doing this kind of work for a long time understand that the project would have to have that, um, would have to make space for it training the staff on stigmatizing language, I would incorporate in your work plan to budget into that. So in our case, we used SAMHSA's Words Matter campaign and converted them to an informal module. And we made a mandatory quiz for our staff. We created videos for outward-facing publication. And the videos would say something like, don't say addict but use a person with substance use disorder and explain the reason why we have to do that. And that shift of language for our team has aligned our civil legal aid providers with medical professionals who appropriately view and treat people with substance use disorder as people with a chronic disease who need treatment and not judgment. So that kind of messaging is not just important in the implementation part of the project, but that you say that up front to the people who are reading this, because chances are the people on that advisory council distributing the funding are people with lived experiences. They are the people who have lost their children. That's why they want to serve on that council. And they are people in recovery. So these things would resonate well with them. And then you also have to make sure that you give your staff a chance to adjust. In our project, I've seen a lot of pushback from our staff, but I've also seen a, I've seen a lot of gradual shift in attitudes and case handling. For example, we have lead attorneys who refuse to help people in adoption defense that come to our door through the project because their SUD history and struggles have created unfavorable facts and the likelihood of a favorable judgment is low. So the rationale is that, that they know that this particular judge will not be on our side and therefore we will lose. So it was just a waste of resources and that's something we had to deal with a lot internally. So we had to cancel our staff for a few things and then this things that we're counseling, you just kind of have to write that into the grant to show that you have the knowledge about how you serve this population. So I'll go over with some of them. So going in front of a judge in a hearing is our way of educating the judges who may have implicit biases against people with substance use disorder, especially in family law cases. It is our opportunity to argue the efficacy of federally approved medication for opioid use disorder and that it is our opportunity to argue, as peer-reviewed journals have established, that a person with SUD can parent good enough. It is our opportunity to argue that we have a lot of notable people in our community, such as attorneys, who suffer through substance use disorder. The only difference between that group and our clients is money. And that difference in standard is a justice issue that we can correct by addressing the stigma within our justice systems. 
We also had to counsel our staff that the project to meet its goal would have to redefine winning. Encouraging someone to stay in treatment and protect their sobriety is a win. There is no sure way of relapse than telling a mother she should give her children up for adoption because she is a morally culpable person because of her chronic disease. So educating our judges to chip away at the culture that stigmatizes people is a win. So you kind of have to do that internally with the staff. So when you're designing a project, you have to say, you have to acknowledge these issues and say, we have a plan. We have a plan to address that. So I think that would resonate really well. So in your project proposal, you must include a sustainability plan. And at the center of that sustainability plan is how you build an SUD-informed staff, including how you will address the stigma lurking underneath that has the potential to destroy the impact and longevity of your project. Thank you, all three of you, for the terrific practical advice you've given to uh, legal aid programs around the country. I'd like to finish with one quick question and move from the broad and systemic advice you've been giving to something more specific and personal. We know there are challenges to serving people with substance use disorders. You've talked, all three of you have talked about it, but we also know that recovery is possible with the right support. Could you just in a sentence, each Tell me what the upside is to doing this work. Betty, let's start with you. I wholeheartedly believe that legal aid changes lives and legal aid saves lives. And that's what these funds do for our community. Robert? Well, the upside to doing this work is that in the face of the devastation of the opioid epidemic, we are making a difference in the lives of individuals in recovery by helping them be more stable and employable, which not only benefits them, but also benefits their families and their communities. Helen, last word. So this project essentially sheds the scales from our eyes as civil legal aid attorneys. Understanding that a client you're serving is impacted by substance use disorder is a roadmap in this attorney-client relationship. Helen, Robert, and Betty, thank you for this really critically important discussion about the life-impacting role civil legal aid can play in helping individuals and families recover from opioid use disorder. And more importantly, thanks for the work you're doing every day to improve the lives of your neighbors. And thanks all for joining us today. Stay tuned to future editions of Talk Justice. Podcast guests, speakers, views, thoughts, and opinions are solely their own and do not necessarily represent the Legal Services Corporation's views, thoughts, or opinions. The information and guidance discussed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice. You should not make decisions based on this podcast content without seeking legal or other professional advice.